Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, The Threadmen Cometh. As the season entered the home stretch, a couple of teams began to separate themselves from the pack. Bethlehem Steel with 22 points topped the table, but JMP Coates were right behind on 20. Fall River at 16, New York on 13, and Patterson with 12 formed the next tier, while it was time to start thinking about next season for Brooklyn and Philadelphia, who stood at six points, while hopeless Harrison sank to the bottom with just three. The new year was certainly one for streaks, both positive and negative. After losing on December 31st to close out 1922, JMP Coates rang in 1923, going undefeated in seven while winning six in a row. Bethlehem Steel didn't lose any of its first nine, winning seven and drawing two. On the other hand, the Quaker City side collapsed as Philadelphia lost six straight to start the new year and had not won a league game since October 15th. The big story of the season's second half had to be the weather. Many contests were canceled or postponed, resulting in a wide disparity in the number of games played. New York, for example, managed to get in only two games in the first three months of 1923. New York, along with Harrison, played no games at all in January, and clubs such as Bethlehem Steel and Fall River played only a single time in the month of February. The weather would also have a major impact on the National Challenge Cup final, as we'll see a bit later in the episode. Don't believe a thing you hear, nor half of what you see. That's what Mother said to me when I was a kid of three. Now I know that she was right, right in every way. In the papers every day, here's what the headlines say. Forest girls are darn good cooks, that's a lot of bunk. And politicians are not crooks, that's a lot of bunk. A good illustration of the lingering effects of the bad weather was an ugly National Challenge Cup quarterfinal between Patterson and New York. It was certainly not matches like this that led people to call soccer the beautiful game. After being postponed and rescheduled, the game was eventually played on March 12, 1923 at Harrison, New Jersey. The pitch was in a terrible state, and due to thawing ice and snow, one end was a sheet of water. Federation officials determined that conditions were so bad, no extra time would be played if the game remained tied after 90 minutes. The game soon turned as nasty as the conditions. A brutal tackle by Patterson's right halfback Scott led to Gothamite forward Hardy being stretchered off the field. New York's Ed Magosian took exception to the play and went after Scott, and the two soon came to blows. Harrison police were called onto the field to break up the melee, and both players were sent off. Hardy would eventually limp back out for the second half. The game sputtered to a nil-nil draw that saw Al Mitchell's goal ruled offside for New York, while Patterson missed a penalty kick. Perhaps the only bright spot was the attendance, 6,000 fans. The numbers for the Challenge Cup and for the league game seemed to be doing well with reports of crowds in the thousands at places like Harrison, Pawtucket, and New York. And now for some headlines from Off the Pitch. The world mourns the passing of the great actress Sarah Bernhardt, who died in her son's arms after a long illness. As word of her death spread, plays were canceled mid-performance and crowds gathered outside her home in Paris. Shortly before dying, she sent a last message to America. I am deeply touched with the sympathetic interest of my beloved American friends. In Wisconsin, wolves were reportedly terrorizing the village of Granville, 
located a short distance from Milwaukee. A horse and a dog had been killed, and women on outlying farms were living in fear of a visit from the animals. Nearly every able-bodied man was armed, and about 50 of them set out with shotguns, rifles, and dogs to hunt down the beasts. K-97, the Department of Justice agent who went undercover to infiltrate the American Communist Party, was the star witness at the trial of labor organizer William Z. Foster. The agent, publicly identified for the first time as Francis Morrow of Camden, New Jersey, testified to the connections between Foster and the Communist International with its program of world revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat. In sports, thousands packed the Commonwealth Casino in Harlem to witness a matchup between the local Commonwealth Five and the all-white original Celtics basketball teams. Expected to be a walkover win for the visitors, instead they had to work hard to overcome the rapidly improving home side. Captain Jenkins' men shaved the Celtic lead to just a single point during the second half before the experienced visitors pulled away, winning comfortably 41-29. One of the clubs that emerged in the new year as potential ASL champions was JMP Coates of Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It was partly a soft schedule that allowed them to climb into second place. Typical of such matches was a 3-0 drubbing of Brooklyn on March 10th. The home side scored three goals in just 15 minutes to put the game out of reach before halftime. Only brilliant work from the Wanderers' keeper kept it from being even more one-sided. A similar performance saw them briefly ascend to the top of the table after a 3-2 victory over Philadelphia on February 24th. According to the Pawtucket Evening Tribune, the scoreline did not reflect the Threadmen's dominance as they far outdistanced the visitors in all points of the game. Once again, great goalkeeping combined with JMP's wasteful shooting helped limit the damage. The home side started brightly with McIntosh scoring on a screamer from near the halfway line that zoomed into the top corner before the Philly keeper could react. It's not as though the visitors didn't have chances in the early going, Perhaps the best coming from a corner when Spanish forward Ruiz headed off the crossbar. Playing on an icy field, the Threadmen's top summer signings proved their quality as John Ferguson was a rock in defense and Whitey Fleming remained threatening as ever in front of goal. The Evening Tribune described one attack. Fleming got behind the leather and bunted it, but Ness checked the pop. Eventually, the Scotsman broke through to notch his 11th goal of the campaign. The sponsor of today's show is Balmort Tablets. Do you suffer from poor kidney function? If so, you are probably depressed, nervous, irritable, and cross with your family and associates. Thousands have improved their kidney function thanks to Balmort Tablets. Go to your druggist now and get some. Just $1.25 for the regular bottle or $0.60 cents for the trial size. It's great to be free of backache. It's fine to sleep sound. You can be free. You can enjoy life thanks to Balmort Tablets. In addition to disrupting the ASL season, the ferocious weather also played havoc with the National Challenge Cup competition. Delays and cancellations led to the championship match being played on April 1st, nearly two weeks later than the 1922 final. Despite the scheduling problems, overall the tournament had another successful year, with gate receipts in the eastern bracket topping $10,000, 
and just over $18,000 in the West. Just like the previous year, the ASL clubs did well with New York, who had ousted Bethlehem Steel, and JMP Coates, who topped Fall River, making it to the quarterfinals. Eventually, it was Patterson who advanced to the national final after beating both New York and JMP Coates to win the Eastern bracket. In the final, they faced off against defending cup champions Skull and Steel of St. Louis. The final was held at Harrison, New Jersey before 16,000 fans, then a record attendance for a soccer game in the United States. Skull and Steel wore numbers on their jerseys that corresponded with a program given to fans to help identify the players, the first documented case of soccer players wearing numbers anywhere in the world. The final, called America's Greatest Soccer Battle, may also have been filmed, but so far no footage has ever been located. The game started tentatively as it seemed that the turf bothered Skull and Steel, while Patterson looked a bit overawed by the occasion and perhaps the crowd. For a time, it seemed that the Steelmen's experience as defending champions gave them an early advantage. The first clear chance fell to Skullen as Charlie Bechtold shot over the bar after a counter-attacking move. The game developed into a struggle of contrasting styles, the short, quick passing of Patterson versus the rugged, long-ball tactics of the St. Louis side. Patterson was continually stifled by the Steelmen's defense, especially the play of Captain Tate Brady and keeper Harry Dutch Olerman. John F. Tintle, writing in the Spalding Guide, claimed that Olerman was better than future Hall of Famer Pete Renzulli. The visitors from the West opened the scoring on a blast from James Dyke Brannigan, and that's the way it stayed after 45 minutes. Patterson's lethargy continued after the restart, and the defending champions began to dominate the game. Soon, a well-placed shot from Elmer Schwartz doubled Scullin's lead. The second goal seemed to motivate Patterson, and they quickly upped the tempo in an attempt to get back into the game. Tommy Duggan drew one back for the Silk Sox, and John Rabbit Hemingsley evened the score when he headed the ball into the top right corner off a cross from Duggan. After 90 minutes, the game remained deadlocked, so the clubs played two 15-minute overtime periods, but neither team could find the back of the net. Overall, the 2-2 draw seemed a fair result, as Patterson were perhaps the better team overall, reportedly earning 21 corners during the match, but the yeoman work of Brady and Olerman kept the Steelmen in the game. The final, however, was not without controversy. The large crowd at times encroached on the field, and some of the Skullin players felt they had been interfered with, but nothing was done. Soon after the game, an emergency meeting of the competition organizers decided to have the replay held the following week in the eastern part of the U.S., rather than in St. Louis. Here is where the weather played a part in deciding the champion. Since the final match had been delayed, it was starting to overlap with the start of baseball season. For the Eastern players, this was not generally a problem, but for the Western players, it was a major issue. Many of the Skull and Squad, including the top players, had to report to their baseball clubs. Dyke Brannigan lined up for the Terre Haute Tots, while Dutch Olerman played for the Hutchinson Wheat Shockers. In fact, some players, like Emmett Mulvey, had missed the 2-2 draw because he was already with the Mobile Bears. If the final had been played earlier, or if the decision had been made to hold it in St. Louis, fans might have been treated to another classic match. 
However, since the Skullin team would be without its best players, either through absence or injury, they ultimately decided to forfeit the replay, and the cup was awarded to the Patterson Silk Sox. With the National Challenge Cup settled, the only thing remaining was to decide who would be ASL champ. Would Bethlehem Steel hang on to its lead, or would JMP Coates' second-half surge put them over the top? Find out the answer to these questions, along with the end-of-season awards in the next episode of the Soccer History USA podcast. Sources for today's program include Colin Joes' The American Soccer League, Dave Wangeren's Distant Corners, and the Google News Archive. Music from archive.org. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For more information, visit www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you.